You're listening to Hashtag No Filter with Zach Peter. That's me, your naturally platinum blonde pop culture connoisseur. I'm the reality TV junkie, self-improvement addict, and host with only the hottest tea spilled fresh all week long. Those balls have gotten you into trouble, though. Oh, you? Yeah. They picked us because we're horny. Yeah. Right. And that's your chronic state. 24-7. <laughs> My life has changed so much that it's almost like a completely different life. From the latest news on The Real Housewives. I'm so happy to be here and engage with you. Deep dives into celebrity legal scandals and unfiltered convos with your favorite stars. I've got you covered. And yes, I always keep receipts. What's going on, guys? Welcome on in. Welcome on in. Welcome on in. It is another book club week. We are breaking down part two of Prince Harry's book, Spare. It is a very thick book. It's very thick, unlike Harry's Todger. We'll get into Harry's Todger because he talks a lot about his frostbitten Todger and a lot about the Todger, a lot about his Todger and Prince William's Todger. Um, I will say part two was pretty different from part one. We'll recap the last couple of chapters of part one since I know last week's book club was a little bit shorter because the book had just come out the day that we did book club. So I didn't have time to get through all, what, 47 chapters. And then there's another 87 chapters that we'll be diving into today with part two. And then next week will be the final, what is it, like another like 80 something chapters? How many chapters are in the part three? Part three has another 87 chapters. Okay, great. So we have a lot. Next week, we'll break down part three, which will be the final 83, 87 chapters. But there are so many chapters and so many stories and so many words and just like so much going on in Prince Harry's world. So let's let's break it down, shall we? Okay, so let's pick up where we left off, and that was with chapter 37 of part one. So we'll recap the final chapters of part one, and then we'll dive into all of part two. So I'm going to try to move through all of these notes, all of these points as quickly as possible. Chapter two, or sorry, part two is a little easier to move through um, because a lot of it is a little bit redundant. But anyway... So chapter 37, part one, Harry's still talking very highly of the queen. He has, it seems like he has a lot of respect for his grandmother. He speaks about her being so progressive, seeming to be um, laying down some groundwork for how he's going to probably tell us how much granny loved Megan, but says she was very progressive. He started to think about his future. He told his dad that he wanted to work at the fondue hut. This is when he was still in high school, like still young teenager, starting to think about what his his 20s and adulthood are going to look like. So he wanted to work at the fondue hut, and then he wanted to work, uh, which was at the ski resort that his mom loved. And then his dad was like, mm, yeah, let's not do that. And then he was like, maybe I'll be a, a ski instructor there, you know, next to the fondue hut, because that seems a little more, more legit. And his father was like, mm, I don't know about that either. But he says that he wanted to abandon his prince duties. He just wanted to, like, get away and wanted to do something. He knew that he was likely never going to get the crown. So he was like, I want to, you know do something that brings me some sort of excitement and fulfillment. And like, this is pretty standard, right? If you're kind of like the screw up teenage kid and your brother's the older one, he's more the responsible one. Then you're like, yeah, like I'll work at the fondue. Huh? Like that's kind of cool. That's kind of fun. I'll just kind of get away. But he said that he was worried about finding his own purpose and finding his own identity outside of the Royal family, outside of his brother's shadow, outside of his father's shadow. But he said that he was always advised to not outshine the monarch because he was just the spare. So Part one very much focuses on him being the spare and how heavy that weighed on him and yada, yada, yada. You're the younger child. You know, your brother's the older one. He's obviously going to inherit the crown at some point. Like, I think he leans way too much into this spare title. He said that his dad didn't pressure him into going to university because there wasn't much that was expected of Harry. He told him, you're not the university type, Harry. But, like, is he wrong? Like, Harry was literally in college smoking pot and drinking beer in high school and sleeping with older women. So his father wasn't technically wrong of being like, listen, school's not for you. I think like my mom was very understanding. Like I did a brief stint, a brief two year stint in college. And I was like, this is not for me. And my mom's like, yeah, college is not for everybody. I get it. Doesn't mean that she thought anything less of me. She just knew that that wasn't my path. Um, so then instead, Harry decides he's going to join the military. His father encouraged him to have adventures ahead of the military. He's like, live it up, live life, enjoy yourself. Like, 
the military is allowed and it's a big responsibility. So like you're young, there isn't a lot of expectation on you. So have fun and live your life. I, it seemed pretty standard for anybody with a teenager entering, getting ready to graduate and enter into their adulthood, right? It seems like he was happy Harry didn't have to carry the burden that William did. And I think that's probably because he had to carry the burden of knowing that he would one day inherit the crown. And he knew there's a big sense of responsibility on William that he was probably happy that Harry didn't have to feel that same sense of responsibility. And he wanted him to be a bit of a free bird. It seems like all he wanted was his son to enjoy life and to live it up, especially considering how challenging it could be in the royal family. So that seemed very standard to me. Harry seems to see it as like, oh, well, my dad just didn't think that I was that important. He didn't think that I, you know, was as significant as William. I didn't read it that way when he was telling the stories. I read it more as like his dad knows you don't have like your father knows the sense of responsibility doesn't weigh on your shoulders. So he would rather you live the life that he and your brother are not able to live. So do have fun. Why go to college? Like, are you a scholar? Do you really like reading books and and doing all of that type of stuff? Because your history says that you don't. But if you do, then pursue that. But if that's not what you want to do, William was pressured into doing that, whether he liked it or not, because William was eventually going to inherit the crown. So there's more expectation on William. Harry didn't have to follow that same expectation because as he says, he's just the spare so but it seemed like you know his guidance was just very different for harry you know and harry just really looked at everything from the lens of being the spare harry discusses the loss of his bff hennas who also died in a car car crash he said that that was tough because it made him feel like he had to relive the loss of his mother who died in the car crash he discussed his talent for acting apparently he really was he was good at it and he liked it he shares how proud his father was of him and how supportive his father was of him even though when his dad would attend his shows he didn't know how to like read the audience or read the room so he would laugh at like all of the wrong times and I mean, I thought it was it was a cute anecdote. It's interesting that we didn't really hear about Harry's love of acting in the documentary and like that being a point of connection for him and Meghan Markle because we knew Meghan loved to participate in the school plays as well. So I found it interesting that that was left out of the documentary or even out of the Oprah interview, or maybe that's not something that they fully connected on. Um, but I would you would just think that that would be something that they naturally would kind of click on being that they were both so actively involved in theater growing up. Harry finishes schooling. He says that it was hard to be proud um, because, you know, he didn't know what his future was going to look like. Apparently his art teacher accused him of cheating and he was like really upset about that. He said that he was ultimately cleared and he didn't cheat in art, which like, how do you cheat in art? Like, what do you copy somebody else's ideas? Like you, unless you're like literally ripping off somebody else's idea. I don't know how you cheat in art or you hire somebody to do a project for you. Unclear of like what he of what the cheating accusation was. Interesting that he doesn't mention what the actual ac- accusation was, but he says he was ultimately cleared and that it it was a big tabloid, tabloid headline and he was really upset. He wanted the palace to set the record straight. Um, but his dad's like, listen, don't read the papers. Like, don't get caught up in that. Like, just ignore it. Like, it's a small tabloid talking about how you cheated on your art project. But obviously, it weighed very heavily on Harry because here he is still talking about it in his book, Spare. But his his father was just like, ignore it. It'll go away. It'll It'll die down. Harry was disappointed in that response. But like, come on. It was an art project. It was a tabloid. It's not that deep. Hardly gut wrenching. Was it really worth the effort of the palace to like try and shut it down? Would the press even care? You know, I feel like they rarely, when it comes to like the press, they rarely care about like setting the record straight. Setting the record straight, unless it's like a big tell-all exclusive, it doesn't drive sales. So people don't care. Trust me, there are plenty of YouTubers and podcasters that are out there and they're essentially, YouTube's and po- YouTube and podcasts are like the new tabloids in a weird way because we're reporting on this type of stuff. But headlines then in that tabloid culture, which is still kind of trickled on, it's I would consider it equivalent to like YouTube clickbait. How many times have you seen your favorite YouTubers, you know, put this low budget tee and put this clickbait headline and all they're really trying to do is push ad revenue, right? And if they get something wrong, how many times do they then do a new video or a new exclusive or whatever about how like, oh, that was wrong. That wasn't real. That was just me doing some clickbait tactics 
No, it doesn't tell, like, correcting the narrative doesn't push ad revenue. So the same way people can be judgmental of the tabloids and the National Enquirer back in the early 2000s, that's literally where we're at with, like, YouTube and podcasting. And even Instagram accounts, right? Different blogs on, you know, Twitter accounts and Instagram accounts. Like, all of that is very much the same thing. It's become the new tabloid culture. Some of us, I feel like, have a little more integrity and are willing to kind of dig into things. There's not as much conjecture, but there can be at times. So, yeah, to me, I'm just kind of like when I put it in perspective with that sort of lens of like, oh yeah, it's equivalent to YouTube clickbait. I didn't take the headlines as seriously. I know it can, I'm sure it can hurt Harry and it was still like a lot for them to be like, Harry cheats on his art project, but like it's hardly that groundbreaking. Harry says that he loved to work as a jackaroo. He loved working with animals. He did anything except snipping the animal's balls. He was like, I'm not snipping any balls. That's just not for me. But I think it's kind of cute hearing him reminisce about his love for animals and love of, you know, his first job, his first like real job. He says that he has, um, you know, a lot of fun with the animals and is able to connect with them and to connect with nature in a different way. So I think those moments are very endearing. Um, there are other parts of it that kind of just like make you chuckle a little bit and like put a little smirk on your face reading some of it. He describes his longing for life outside of Prince Harry. And I believe like that nature and that connection to nature was ultimately what kind of helped him come out of that shell. It sounds like, which is something I suspected that he never really enjoyed being a royal and that he knew that you know, there wouldn't be, there wouldn't likely be a need for him. And so he always kind of sought his own way out. And I think that that's understandable considering, you know, um, ultimately someone like Meghan Markle comes in, you know, I think he always wanted out, right? He always wanted to find a way out, but didn't think that that was necessarily possible for him. And someone like Meghan Markle then comes into the picture. And I think, she helped him find his way out. And is that a bad thing? I don't know. I mean, I don't love the way he's gone out, but I love that he was able to find somebody that was able to help him find the things that he wanted, you know, this freedom outside of the monarchy. He talks about snobbery and classism, about his dating life, and how the press was always judging him for dating the page three girls. And the page three girls were apparently girls that would like post hopless. He talks about how um, he was the first to speak out about Diana publicly to a reporter. That, that was like a no-no. Apparently Prince Charles didn't want any of them to address it in the press to have avoid any further scandal or sensationalizing of Diana's passing. That to me sound very standard. Harry seems to feel like... I saw it from the lens of like, the more we talk about Diana, the more it becomes a scandal, the more it becomes tabloids and the more we profit or the more they profit off of the death of Princess Diana. That's how I read it. Harry seems to read it as like his dad just didn't want them talking about Diana. I don't, I mean, that's their mom, you know, and from, there are moments where like he tries to make it seem like his dad was very, you know, cold and mean and I'm pretty sure there was an element of that but like there are also moments where he talks about his dad as like being like a real like encouraging him to like have fun in the last few years of his teens and to not have to worry about going to university I just think the lens that he views things from like he's viewing it from a lens of wanting to see his father in this light whereas for me objectively kind of looking into it now I'm like well it does make sense if he said that he didn't want you to talk about Diana because that would further sensationalize things and people are going to then sensationalize what you say and then that makes you a bigger topic and then that keeps your name in the press and they're profiting off of you. So if you don't like them profiting, don't talk about it. And if you don't want them profiting off of your mother, don't talk about your mother. To me, that logically makes sense. He doesn't seem to be looking at it from that lens though. Again, he looks at it from despair. He looks at it from his dad thinking he's insignificant. He looks at it from his dad just wanting to control him. And I think we do that a lot with our parents, right? When we look back at our childhood, we look at things from a very different lens. And sometimes it's not until we get older and do some inner work, heal some childhood trauma, become parents ourselves, that we start to reframe things. And I think that reframing is really important. And, you know, I just wish he would start to reframe things in a way that he sees how these experiences shaped the person that he's become rather than looking at it from this victimhood perspective. Harry says he hated living in a bubble, but he saw that there was there were more important things going on in the world. He talks about dating Chelsea Davy, which is, I guess, one of his first like big public relationships. She also didn't uh, know anything about Harry or the royals, as she claimed, just like Meghan Markle. 
Apparently, the two of them bonded over Africa. They bonded over their love for animals. He says that he was worried that the press would cost him yet another relationship. I get that. You have to have really tough skin in order to like get through the beatings in the press because they're going to give you beatings in the press. They're going to give anybody, you know, beatings in the press. It does hinder your ability to have genuine relationships. So I get that too. You'd need to find somebody that is really special, that's willing to put in the work. And then it's like you have to find the balance because if somebody's willing to put in the work, you have to think of why. Are they really putting in the work because they love me or are they putting in the work because they have something to gain from all of this and they want this type of lifestyle? So I think that that does make it hard. Now, then we get into Camilla. And now Prince Charles was ready to marry Camilla. Lots of obstacles in place for them, according to Harry. One of them being that they couldn't marry in the church because of the previous divorce. He said that it felt like all of these obstacles were really just the universe working against them. And this was almost like omens that were forbidding their marriage. It was like the forbidden wedding, right? He doesn't really seem to like Camilla. Definitely makes that clear throughout the book. Even though he says, you know, he he didn't hate Camilla necessarily. Doesn't really seem to like her. Um, fairly standard for someone having to accept the loss of their mother and the introduction of a new stepmother. You know, I think you're always going to have that. Like, oh, who's this new woman? What, what role is she going to play? Is she going to try to replace my mother? All of that. I get it. You know, even though he didn't trust Camilla... He just wanted his father to be happy, he claims. He thought that Camilla being happy might make her less dangerous as well. So he's like, listen, if the two of them can be together and they can be happy, I don't have to worry about them. But he definitely felt like Camilla was dangerous. He discusses a knee injury that he got while he was training for the military. He laughed that the press ran a story of him injuring it during rugby. And he's like, that's not true. That's a lie that came from the palace. So he definitely loved to read the tabloids, especially the ones about himself. We get into William's new girlfriend, Kate Middleton. He speaks very highly of Kate. He seemed to really like her at the beginning. He knew that Kate would be the one to take William away from him ultimately, though. He, which is also weird because, like, he talks about how, like, William didn't want anything to do with him as kids. But yet, like, then he, like, makes these, like, what references where they were so close. And now he's worried that, like, the new girlfriend's going to take his brother away from him. But I thought your brother didn't want anything to do with you. You know, just a little, a little bit of conflict, a little bit of contradiction. He discusses the costume party. And this is where the Nazi costume comes up. And so he says that William dressed up as a leopard and he had this like leotard and it was like really goofy. He says that he just wanted to make Kate laugh. Harry. Harry just wanted to make Kate laugh and he just wanted to make her happy because she made William happy. And so he's like, I don't know. What do I have to do? Who should I dress up as that'll make Kate Middleton laugh? It's like, how do you compete with the leopard leotard, right? So he decided nothing could be funnier than a Nazi costume. He said that at the party, nobody thought twice about it. But once the press got wind, that's when it blew up into a scandal. But ultimately, he's like, Kate and William thought that it was funny. And I just wanted to make Kate Middleton laugh. And like, I just thought the most hilarious thing ever would be to dress up as a Nazi. (sighs) He said that he just he wasn't thinking he wanted to go door to door afterwards and apologize to the Brits and tell them that he was so sorry. And he didn't know what he was doing. I mean, listen, he was 20 years old. He was a dumb kid that made a dumb mistake, a really, really dumb mistake. But he's 20 years old. Think of for those of you that are parents, like think of like your 17, 18, 19, 20, even 21 year old kids that have done and said really stupid stuff, especially boys like boys say really dumb, stupid things, especially at that age. That with that, not that it's okay. I'm not defending what he did at all. Like you should never dress up as a Nazi because you think that's going to be funny. But like, he made a mistake, you know? He says that his dad was really there for them, that his dad knew that it was wrong and explained to him that it was wrong, but he also gave his son grace. as like, listen, you're young, you're a dumb kid, you made a dumb mistake. So... Then he talks about how he had one of the staff members... Um, pulled together the police report and photos of his mother's car accident because he just was still having a hard time coming to grips with this being the reality. And he was like, I need to actually see it. I need it to be real. So he details that I guess the staff member didn't give them all, didn't give him all of the photos that he gave him what he thought he could handle and like kept some stuff away from Harry. But he realized that most of the photos in the file that he received were taken by the paparazzi and He saw the photos of her. It broke his heart 
to see her final moments being feasted on by these photographers. He said that it made him full of rage and that he blamed them for what happened to her and that they're the ones that did this to her. And it really breaks your heart to hear him discuss the grief that he's faced, right? And I think, again, these are the moments of the book that are really rich and really endearing that I think we, as people that are interested in the royal family and interested in Prince Harry specifically, like these are the moments that we want to know about. We want to know what it was like you know, for you and your brother at the funeral, if you're willing to to share that, then tell us your experience, tell us your feelings. And I guess that's kind of what he's doing. But a lot of it is, you know, he's trying to malign a few people's characters. And I get it. That's his experience. That's his truth. But at the same time, it's also just like, but sometimes certain things just don't need to be said or certain things just don't make the story more rich. They make the story more scandalous. And it makes me question the motive of like, are you trying to be scandalous? Is this all you know is scandal? And that's why you lean into it in this way. Or are you really just trying to tell us your truth? Because there's a way of telling us your truth that that shares your experience without dragging other people through the mud, without sensationalizing things or exploiting certain things about people and exploiting certain details about other people. So it is a little endearing, but, you know, there are rich moments like, you know, this moment where he he's like, I, I couldn't believe that she had passed and I didn't want to believe that she was gone. And I had to see it for myself. And then I went through this and it made me enraged and I became angry at the press. And it's like you can say I became angry at the press without constantly making the press a villain. And I think he tries too hard to hammer that in. The press is evil. The press is evil. The photographers are evil. The paparazzi are evil. They're evil. They're evil. They're evil. They're evil. Not that I think that they're great, but it's like they're people making a living. Like, this is their job. Whether I like it or not, like, you know, we take the humanity out of them. And listen, I think they take the humanity out of, out of celebrities and the royals, too. That I think it's it's a double-edged sword. And you can't necessarily defend the paparazzi either or defend the press and the tabloids. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, everybody's out here to to make their money. And I guess that's what Harry's doing with the book, right? He's like, if they can profit off of me, then I'm going to profit off of other people and continue to further scandalize all of this. Talks about joining the military boot camp. He said that he was ready for the next phase in, in his life. He knew that no matter what was dished out in boot camp, he knew that he could handle it. He was built to handle it. His family was very proud of him when he completed his training. Even his grandmother made a public appearance supporting him. Chelsea was by his side. And now he was ready to fully lean into the military and he was ready to head off to Iraq. Then we officially move into part two. Part two is 87 chapters. We're going to try to as briefly as we can get through all 87 chapters. Um, Part two. A lot of it is about the military. So there's not a whole lot that we'll dive into, but we'll, we'll gloss over some of that stuff. So there was a mixed reaction to, to Prince Harry joining the military and going off to war. He said that there was a plot to kidnap him and hold him hostage. And some people encouraged him to break free. And they liked that he was leaving the royal family and doing something different. He was ultimately deployed from Iraq because the threat against him was too big. He again blames the press. Lots of blaming the press. Everything is the press's fault. And not that the press is great. But I'm like, at some point, like, when do we just stop being a victim? And when do we stop blaming everybody else around us, right? He says that he was torn because he wanted to leave the army completely, but he wasn't willing to fully commit. So instead, he ended up turning to partying. And the paparazzi would try to provoke him when he would go out and party. And he just wanted to live his life. I'm tired of rumors starting. I'm sick of being followed. I'm tired of people lying, saying what they want about me. Why can't they back up off me? Why can't they let me live? That's a Lindsay Lohan song. And see, I think it's easy to compare Prince Harry to Lindsay Lohan. Lindsay Lohan was out there doing drugs and partying and drinking and driving drunk and doing all these crazy, wild, scandalous things, as was Paris Hilton, as was Nicole Richie. Remember when she she got her, um, her DUI for driving on the wrong side of the freeway? Like... So it's hard to say the press is to blame for all of this because, yes, these are young kids, right? They're people that are young and dumb and maybe don't have the right guidance or influence around them. I think Prince Harry's a little different. I think he did have guidance around him, and the guidance was just not guidance he was willing to follow. They were like, don't provoke the press. Keep a low profile. Stay out of the headlines. Like You don't need to engage in all of this, and he seemed to enjoy provoking it. 
he seems to have reframed it as they enjoyed provoking him. And maybe there was a little bit of truth in both of that, right? I think they enjoyed provoking him because then they would make money off of that. But I think he also liked to be a natural rebel and he liked to fight against it because he didn't really feel like he had a place. He was a rebel without a cause and he didn't necessarily feel like his place mattered in the royal family. And I think that's natural, right? especially given the circumstances. So he said that he would sneak out of clubs by lying in the back of trunks so that nobody would see him. Um, and that's how he would get around. He would, you know, sneak in back doors and he was just always trying to find ways to not get caught by the paparazzi. He says that it was the only way for him to prevent them, for him to prevent himself himself from attacking them. Cause he's like, if I saw them, then I'm going to attack them and I'm going to want to beat them up and I'm going to want to, cause they're going to provoke me and blah, 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 blah. So the only way I know how to do that is to hide. Okay, fine. Whatever. He talks about the benefit concert he hosted with William in honor of his mother's memory. Elton John performed. He really admired how radiant princess Diana was remembered. Then we get back to his drinking, which apparently is only getting worse. Now we're getting into like his early twenties and him becoming an adult. So it was, I guess, his way of coping, all the, the copious drinking that he was doing since he was now deployed from going to Iraq. He came up with an alternative, and the alternative was to begin being part of the Air Force team for the team that was deployed, or deployed, I guess, is when you get pulled back, but the team that was sent to Afghanistan. He was like, I want to stay in the army, but I need to figure out a way to do it. So he talked to, I guess, his sergeant and they were like, okay, you can do, you can be part of the air force, but we're going to send you to Afghanistan because that's the safer option. We can't send you to Iraq because the threat there for you is too big. And they've already expressed, you know, putting a, a target on your head and wanting to, you know, as I mentioned earlier, kidnap him. And he says that these were all the things that they were having to face. Things, meanwhile, as he was getting ready to go to Afghanistan, things were starting to crumble with Chelsea. His head was more focused on serving rather than on building or focusing on his relationship. He recalls being invited to the World Semi-Cup Finals. On his way there, he was asked, or he asked his driver to drive him through the tunnel that Diana died in. And he said he wanted him to drive at approximately 65, 65 miles per hour because that's the speed that her driver was reportedly driving when they crashed. Um, or I guess not reportedly because he claims that the reports were that the driver was going 100 miles per hour, but the police report is what clarified that the driver was on, wasn't going beyond 70. He was driving in his, in his mid-60s in miles per hour. So he thought that this would bring him closure, driving that speed through that exact tunnel. But he said afterwards, all it did was bring him more pain. He described the tunnel as lackluster. He said that it was very short. The experience was just, you know, simple. Then he went out drinking. Apparently, this made him even more self-destructive. And so definitely seems like there's a strong alcohol dependency. I'm curious if in part three... We talk about that a little more, maybe like him going to rehab and becoming sober. I've never heard him talk about being sober. So unclear if he's claiming that the drinking is, you know, just his way of coping or whether he's going to really lean into this sobriety thing. I feel like a lot of people lean into to sobriety as, you know, another way. I, I guess it's not fair to say a way to make themselves feel important. As somebody that grew up around alcoholism, my stepfather, very violent alcoholic, right? Um, like... Never abusive physically towards any of us, but like he, I remember him getting into drunken fits and throwing furniture and, you know, when my mom would lock him out, he would bust down the door at like 2 a.m. I remember him punching holes in walls. He definitely had anger issues and he loved to drink. Um, my grandfather, also a really strong dependency to alcohol, very functioning alcoholic, caused a lot of drama and waves within the family as well with his drinking. So I understand alcoholism. I've been around it. I've been, you know, I've seen it firsthand. Um, it's not easy, but I do think that there, I mean, I don't know, I guess I see it a little differently. Um, I do believe that people struggle with it for sure. But I also think that there's just this new trend of like people like, leaning into sobriety because they think it's like a cool thing to do and not that it isn't or whatever, but I just, I don't know. I guess I see it more with like younger people that haven't gone through true substance abuse struggles. Like, you know, people in their late teens, early twenties, if you want to cut out alcohol because that's a healthier decision. Great. I think that's great. If you don't want to drink because you're like, I don't like the way I feel on it. 
it's just not for me. Maybe I'll have a glass of wine on occasion, but I don't need to get fucked up every night. Fine, cool. I think that's 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 totally your prerogative. But when people lean into this identity of like, I'm 20 years old and I need to be sober. And I'm just like, you haven't even lived enough life to like be on a sobriety journey. Um, so that's my little, little tangent just as a side note. And because it is becoming such a big trend, especially with a lot of younger people, I'm curious if he hasn't already, if this is a narrative that he's going to start to go down, because I do feel like there is a bit of like some self-serving, you know, victimhood narrative that often does come with that, not in all cases. And I want to be clear that I'm not making a generalized statement to include everybody struggling with sobriety or everybody that claims to be sober right now. I just have seen a trend in certain people and certain personality types. And I'm curious if that's something that Harry might lean into given based off of what we read in this book so far, there is a lot of that victimhood. There is a little bit of that narcissism, that unaware, you know, that ignorant arrogance, ignorant narcissism, where it is all about me and the world revolves around me and I'm the world's biggest victim. We get a lot of that. I do have a lot of sympathy for Harry. I do find a lot of the parts of the books endearing, um, but a lot of it is a little whiny, especially in part one. So now we're in part two. Um, He, okay, where am I? Oh, so he, mm, hold on, sorry, sorry, sorry. Oh, so he then later re-revisits the tunnel again, but this time with William, and he says that they that William shared that he had gone through the tunnel tunnel privately, uh, yeah, privately previously, and that this was the first time that they actually got to discuss Diana's crash together and how the crash and the the details and the police report didn't make sense to them. The police report stated that the driver was drunk and that he crashed the car because he was drunk, but he believes that the paparazzi were hounding them and blinded the driver with all of their flashes, and that's ultimately what caused the driver to crash. The police report said that there was alcohol in the driver's system, um, but they also claimed that the the car was only going like 65 miles an hour. I don't know. I, I honestly, I mean, I think the paparazzi were definitely chasing them and the paparazzi were definitely hounding them. But if the paparazzi are chasing you and you're only going 65 miles per hour, that also was like kind of a weird, and I don't, and this is the part where I hate to speculate on it because this is his mother and this is her death and this is a very sensitive topic for him. Um, but that, I mean, I guess there are just a lot of questions around that, but he seems to think that somebody sent the paparazzi there and he believes that there was a bigger corruption and a bigger cover up. And he claims that he and William wanted to reopen the case, but that that was ultimately shut down. Again, I can understand why that would be shut down because then that just causes more scandal and further, um, exploiting of princess Diana and her passing. And just like further opens up the family to like have to go through, relive all of that and have to have it all dragged out in the press again. Um, we get the, all of part two talks a lot on and off about his time at war, his time in the army. A lot of it, we get into, a, we get a lot of that story. Um, so if you're interested in that, you'll get a lot of that in part two. A lot of it is just kind of his retelling of stories off at war experiences, bonding experiences with the other soldiers, um, lots of war stuff in part two. Um, when his cover is blown, Harry immediately gets extracted from Afghanistan and gets brought home again. He ultimately breaks up with Chelsea because he didn't believe that she could handle this life. The press was a lot. They were constantly hounding her. Um, and he was just like, I don't think she's built for this. Then a new scandal broke. And the new scandal was not the Nazi costume, but this time it was with him messing around with his fellow soldiers, um, not messing around in a sexual sense, but like they were all like ragging on each other and he was filming a video. And then he, there was um, one friend that he referred to as his little Paki friend because he was uh, Pakistanian and he didn't realize that Paki was a slur. And he just thought of it as like, oh, there's my little Australian friend. And he didn't realize that my little Paki friend was a slur and he said that at that point he wasn't yet fully aware of his privilege and he wasn't yet fully aware of his unconscious bias and that his friend didn't take uh didn't take any offense to it and his friend didn't seem bothered by that term you know they were all just kind of ragging i guess he makes it seem like it was locker room talk 
But the press definitely made it a big thing. And he was, it definitely was a scandal. And he felt really badly about it because, again, he wasn't yet aware of his privilege and his unconscious bias. And so it seems that, you know, he made some mistakes, but he was learning from them. And so part two, I think, has a little more accountability and a little more maturity in comparison to part one, the deeper into part two we actually get. He definitely seems there's still a lot of like victimhood and still a lot of blame that he puts on the press. But it seems like when it comes to some of these scandals, there's a little bit of a change in tone. Whereas like in part one where he talks about the Nazi costume, there was a lot of like blame that he put on William and Kate because they thought that it was funny and nobody around him told him that it was bad. So he didn't know any better. And he definitely there is a little more growth and maturity. But that also, I guess, comes with the fact that he was now growing up and becoming a young man. He was very excited about the fall of, of Murdoch and how he felt like it was a ni- it was nice to finally see the press being held accountable. He has a real love for Botswana. He writes a lot about Botswana and about all of his trips there and how much he appreciates nature and how much he loves animals. He said that he was caught off guard by William's decision to marry Kate. Obviously, I mean, which is kind of interesting because he's like, they were in love and they made each other so happy. But he said that he found out about William making the decision to marry Kate in the press. Apparently the ring that William used was reportedly a gift from Harry, but Harry says that that's not true. The ring was never Harry's to give that it was always going to be William's ring to give to his, his future wife. He says that William's love life was thriving and that he was worried for himself because he was like, will I ever find love? My brother's finding love and my brother's reaching these milestones, but when will it actually happen to me? And his heart really just belonged to the army. That's, his real, you know, his real true love was nature, really loves Botswana, and loved being part of the military. I think it was really because it gave him a sense of purpose. You know, I think a lot of men join the military and join the army because they want to be a part of something that's bigger than themselves. And I think that's why he's very active in, you know, his philanthropic work. I think that's why he definitely has a deep appreciation for the military is that it allowed him to be part of something that wasn't the royal family and these were his choices he got to choose to be a part of these things and to lean into it right there was a trip to the north pole okay and this is kind of a a clip that's going viral on social media but so there was a trip to the north pole and harry was invited to go and to meet some wounded veterans that were being celebrated or honored and he takes a little more accountability for his Nazi costume here and he talks about how he he reflects on a trip that he took to Berlin and how that was so important for him because that helped him really understand the impact that the Nazis had on the Jews now he was off to go to the North Pole for another impactful trip And he said that he wasn't used to cold temperatures like this. So he wasn't fully prepared, especially when it came to like, you know, he he's like, no one told me that you're not supposed to sweat at the North Pole because then your your sweat will immediately turn to ice and then your clothes will become like icicles. So he said that he wasn't fully prepared and that his fingers were starting to get frost nip. The flights coming home got canceled because the weather was so bad and there was one big issue looming over his head and that's it. Uh, Prince William's wedding was coming up and he was afraid he might not make it back. Spoiler alert, he made it back in time for the wedding. But upon return, he says that Prince William didn't want Harry to make a best man speech at the wedding because he was afraid that um, he might embarrass him. But they kind of laughed about it. This was kind of a cute moment um, where he's like, I'm afraid you're going to embarrass me. And then together they kind of riff on all the things that Harry could have potentially said that would have been embarrassing to say as a best man at the wedding. So it seemed to be a cute brotherly moment. Um, Again, we kind of sway between we had a close relationship and we didn't have a close relationship and he was my best friend and he wasn't my best friend, but he then seems to confirm that he and William are indeed circumcised, circumcised that princess Diana would not have allowed for her boys to not be circumcised, even though that was a rumor that the boys had hoods or uh, yeah, like a hoodie on their penis Um, confirms if there was any speculation, they are both very circumcised. Very interesting. Then he says that his penis was very tender after his trip to the North Pole because apparently it was frost nip. He says that William was wildly hungover after or the night before the wedding because they had a little too much rum the night before. Now it was time for him to give William away where he says that it brought up 
his uh, some feelings that he had at Diana's funeral. He said William had frustrations with not being able to have much say in his own wedding because obviously the monarchy and the royal family, the, the senior members had a lot more say in, in it as well. And obviously tradition weighed a lot in, in the wedding ceremony too. He speaks very highly of Kate. He says that he sees Kate as the sister that he never had and he was happy that Kate made his brother so happy. He says that weddings in the royal family though are like funerals. It's a it's like saying goodbye as they fall deeper and deeper into the monarchy. So then we get back to the frostbitten penis because he talks about how the penis was bothering him going into the wedding. And then we get we learn more about Prince Harry's penis. And he keeps talking about the frostbitten penis all throughout talking about the wedding, which is like a really interesting like juxtaposition. We kind of like interweave wedding ceremony, wedding details, brotherly moments and our dicks. And so very much focused on his penis. And I know that snippets of this are what have been going viral on on social media. Um, But I think it's interesting that we're interweaving the stories of his penis. Like, I get it. Like, your penis was frostbitten and, you know, very uncomfortable during the wedding. But, like, why can't we talk about all the wedding stuff and then have, like, your own chapter where you talk about your dick? Like, I just – I don't understand. I didn't really get the point of, like, talking so much about his dick. Um, But it's interesting because I can't tell if he's trying to, like, be cheeky and be funny and he thinks that it's, like, a cute anecdote because it's really weird to mix the two – the two stories or if he's just trying to take the attention off of his brother Willie and put more of the attention on his own little Willie but then he fully leans in and we talk about his ostracizing penis and how his friend he was worried because the penis was just like not it was like it was burned from the ice cold weather in the North Pole and how his friend told him to use Elizabeth Arden cream. And he was like, oh my God, I remember Elizabeth Arden cream. My mother used to to put Elizabeth Arden cream on her lips and that's what made her lips so subtle, supple. And he puts Elizabeth Arden cream on his penis and that didn't seem to help. But he does remember that when he opened the jar of Elizabeth Arden cream, this is a great promotion for Elizabeth Arden. I hope Elizabeth Arden, her cream is still out there and she knows that Prince Harry's penis and Princess Diana's lips are very well moisturized thanks to Elizabeth Arden. So he puts it on or he opens the jar and he says that it reminds him immediately of his mother because it smells just like his mother before lathering it all over his dick. Then he says that it doesn't help and it didn't actually do anything. So he ends up finding a private doctor that he had to sneak in to go see, hoping that this doctor can actually help him with his frostbitten dick. He said that the doctor was very nervous. He was a nervous wreck having to treat Prince Harry's penis. And he was like, oh, my God, it's you. It's you. Oh, my God, this is your penis. This is the, this is some royal dick. And ultimately, uh, Harry said that his penis was so sensitive that it felt like he was having sex all of the time. And, like, that's not ideal because, like, anybody – well, I guess for the ladies, obviously the gentlemen have experience, but, like, after you climax, right, like, you're you're very sensitive down there. And so usually that's why you're like, okay, don't touch it any further. Like, no, don't do anything any further because it's really sensitive. I would hate to imagine having that feeling – constantly like that would be torture so i do have sympathy for prince harry's royal dick that's circumcised by the way so after a thorough examination the doctor had finally found the right cure and the right cure was time time heals all wounds and that's all he could do for prince harry not even elizabeth arden could help him so harry says that while his his penis may have healed he didn't know while time may have healed his penis he didn't know when time would now heal his lonely heart. Then he finds himself a new girlfriend, Flea. The press ultimately ends up chasing her away too. There were two paparazzis in particular that he seems to to point out that were very intrusive. And they would always see these two paparazzis everywhere that they went. And initially, they just kind of looked at the paparazzi as just like a blur of strangers. But that these two, specifically Tweedledee and Tweedledummers, how he refers to them, were a lot more savvy and that they knew Harry and William's every single move and that they were becoming rich off of the royal family, specifically the two brothers. He says that they were Murdoch's henchmen before, um, you know, letting, I guess, I don't know. He doesn't really seem to, at least in part two, nothing really seems to come of the henchmen other than he sees them pop up quite a bit and he thought that they were just like awful and intrusive. Then before heading off to war again, Harry makes sure to seize the day, carpe diem, right? His dad told him carpe diem. His buddies around him told him carpe diem. You're going back to war. There's always a chance that you might not come back. 
And I don't know if I'd necessarily believe that there's a chance that Prince Harry might not come back. I feel like he was the most protected in the army, even though he did have the biggest target on him. But there was definitely the priority to protect him because he was such a target. But he definitely wanted to carpe diem. So naturally, what does he do? He goes to Vegas and plays a round of strip blackjack. And then while playing some some strip blackjack in Vegas, uh, there were some photos that were taken by some of the blackjack ladies. And they ended up putting them on the internet. And the photos ended up everywhere. And we all, I don't know if you remember them. I remember seeing them of Prince Harry and he was naked and he's cold. He's holding his formerly frostbitten, now defrosted royal dick. He's covering that up. You see his bare butt and you see him like fully butt naked. And listen, he's in Vegas. He's having a good time. He's a young 20-something. Photos were everywhere. became a big scandal. His father seemed to be very understanding of it. A young guy doing something stupid in Vegas. Even his sergeants were fine with it. He was worried that they were going to be bothered by it and kick him out. But they saw it as just like a dumb mistake. And listen, we've all been there, right? We've all made some dumb mistakes when we were younger. Um, he just happens to be notable. And unfortunately, naked photos of him are going to sell well. But many soldiers posted naked photos online in solidarity. They would like have their helmet or they would cover themselves up and were like, we stand with Prince Harry's naked butt all over the press. So he ends up going off to war, becomes a target of the Taliban. Here we go again. Um, he ultimately made it back in one piece. He ends up giving an interview about his kill number, which became another big scandal. But he references 9-11 and talks about the importance of fighting that war against humanity because when they came and attacked in New York on 9-11, that that was ultimately attack on humans and he needed to stick up for humanity. He says that he saw the people there as people instead of targets. I don't know if that really helps, um, especially considering he did he knows his kill number. I feel like, I don't know if that was the most helpful thing. But anyway, he considered the trip overall to be a success. Upon return, the palace wanted Harry to do another tour in the U.S. for the fallen soldiers, especially now since this was directly related to 9-11. Go, to the, go talk to the Americans. Post-war, he made his philanthropy a priority for him to help wounded soldiers. He also opens up a lot more about the PTSD that he developed when he returned and about the anxiety that was really starting to, to build up inside of him. Approaching his 30s was hard, he says. He was developing major anxiety because he had so much pressure to marry and pressure to be something and be someone. And now that his time with the army was seemingly coming to an end, he didn't know what his place was going to be. And he didn't know what his 30s were going to look like. It's interesting because now as I'm, I'm 29, I'll be 30 in June. And a lot of my friends are turning 30. And they all seem to have this same like sentiment of being like, I have this anxiety about going into my 30s. And I have this anxiety about turning 30 because like, what is my life going to be in my 20s or over and blah, 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 blah. I don't know if it's because I've been working from a very young age and I was always just like very career driven all throughout my 20s. I'm looking forward to turning 30. I'm, I cannot wait for my 30s. I mean, I, I say that now. I'm still, what, six months away from turning 30, but I'm excited. I literally cannot wait to turn 30. I love aging. I enjoy getting older. I enjoy the maturity and the growth and the evolution. And just, you know, like I don't miss being in my early 20s. I don't want to go back to being in my early 20s. Like obviously there are memories you look back, you look back on fondly, but like there's nothing about it that I wish I can go back to. Um, even my body, my, and none of that, I feel like I'm like, I just, I was not in a healthy place there. Not, nor was I in a really solid place. Whereas now I feel a lot more grounded. And so I look forward to my thirties because I know the journey that I went on in my twenties that I know come thirties, it's only going to have more of that. And it's only going to continue to get better. But Prince William, or sorry, Prince Harry did not feel that way. He talks about how Prince Charles had full control of his finances and William's finances and how that felt very unfair to them. And upon turning 30, he was now leaving the army together altogether. And now he was about to become a full-time royal. He said that he was nervous because he was uncertain of what that life would actually look like. He says William was also currently struggling with, with royal life. So he was like, oh, William can't get this together. Like, what's this really going to look like for me? And he said that William was struggling because they had to find a fine balance because they weren't allowed to upstage Camilla. Apparently, she was supposed to be the main priority in the press. and It was only supposed to be good press focused on her. William and Kate had already been scolded a number of times for taking the attention away from Camilla and onto themselves. And then because 
William and Kate were now retreating and not trying to be a part of the press, the press started to beat them up and started giving them negative press coverage for not giving them as much access to their new family as the press felt like they were entitled to. He talks about how he's not into royal life and how he's really just a simple guy at the end of the day. He doesn't care if his clothes are mixed match. He's not into fashion. He loves to shop at TJ Maxx. He loves the TJ Maxx sales, loves shopping at the Gap. He loves the Gap sales. Interesting. He likes to do his own grocery shopping. Um, He loves to stand up for the cashiers. If there's a customer that's being a real bitch, he'll stand up for the cashier because he doesn't like when people mistreat mistreat the, the, the workers, the frontliners. He loved watching friends and smoking pot. That's kind of what his nights became because he stopped going out as much and his nights, you know, he became more reclusive and wanted to stay in more. And so he watched a lot of friends. That was his favorite, his favorite sitcom. Started going to therapy for his anxiety. He says that that helped a lot. He also started to do a lot of meditation. He started taking psychedelics. He says that all of this was very helpful for him. But of all of it, he says that it was his charity work that was the best medicine that helped him because that really gave him a sense of purpose, which I understand and I, I believe that. He ends part two by sharing his love of the honesty and transparency of Americans. And then he talks about doing some shrooms at Courtney Cox's house, which was a real special delight for him because he loved friends and he loved Monica and he liked that he and Monica got to do some shrooms together. Okay. And that is the end of part two. Wow. We just went through what? almost a hundred chapters, a whole chunk of, of the book. We wrapped up the end of part one and we got through all of part two. And the next week we'll wrap things up with part three. And part three is where we introduce Meghan Markle. So this was mostly about his like becoming an adult. Part one was focused on his childhood. And then part three is going to be focused on this most recent chapter. I think that's probably the one, the part that people are going to be the most interested in because we're going to see what he actually says about Meghan Markle, about the press, about why they left, about all of the things that happened behind closed doors at the Royal Palace. So that's something we have to look forward to. I will be reading part three while I'm in Cancun this week. Um, And I'll make sure I have my notes ready so that come next Tuesday, we'll be live streaming and you'll get the the full update on what's going on with Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. So next Tuesday, 5.30 p.m. Pacific, 8.30 Eastern, we'll go live on the YouTube and break down part three for our live book club. And then I'll make sure we share the rebroadcast on the podcast, probably that following Wednesday. That way you have that ready, ready, ready. All right, guys. I love you. I appreciate you. I hope you enjoyed book club this week. I hope you, or well, technically our Zach Pack Weekly unpacks. I think once we finish Harry, I want to do, what's her name? Pamela Anderson. She has a new documentary that's coming out and she has a new book that's coming out. And that just seems wildly interesting as she gets into the sex tape and everything. So I think that would actually be really fun to go through all of that. Maybe watch uh, Pam and Tommy on on Hulu and maybe do like a special comparison of like the documentary and her story versus, or the book and her story versus what we see in the Hulu series. Let me know how interested you are in Pamela Anderson, but I feel like that will be fun for us to focus on once we wrap up all the Prince Harry stuff. Because I believe the documentary and the book come out on the 30th, which is a Tuesday, which is when we normally do our, our book clubs and our, our, our weekly unpacks, I should say. And that's like what we did with Prince Harry. The book came out last Tuesday and we dove into part one last Tuesday. That's how we started things off. So let me know if you guys, how much, how interested you guys are in that. And I love you and I appreciate you. And I love that we get to do these recaps together. Hopefully you enjoyed part two of the book. Let me know what your favorite parts were. Let me know if you're reading the book or if you don't care, you just want me to give you the updates because those are fun for me too. If you were in the live chat, I hope you were enjoying it. I'm sorry that this isn't live live, but... I'm glad that we all get to to chat together. All right, guys, I love you. I appreciate you. And I will talk to you soon. Okay, now I have to like finish packing and get ready and like go to brunch right now. All right, ciao for now. Bye.